Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. We're here to talk about the humanitarian crisis in Syria. My name is Aaron Schachter. I'm the assignment editor at Public Radio International's The World. I'm today's moderator, and I spent seven years in the Middle East, uh, went to Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria a number of times, uh, luckily never during a humanitarian crisis like this. This event is a collaboration of the Forum and PRI's The World and WGBH Radio here in Boston. The Forum is a live webcasting series about health policy produced at the Harvard School of Public Health, which is celebrating its centennial year. Webcasting 100 years ago was a a trouble, as you might imagine. <laughs> this event is part of a larger Harvard series on Syria's humanitarianism, uh, humanitarian crisis, and you can find out more about the series on Twitter. The hashtag is Harvard on Syria. Today's panelists, starting from my immediate left, are Jennifer Leaning. She directs the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. Jean Gilman is advisor to MIT's Security Studies Program. Michael Van Royen uh, directs Harvard, the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Recep Akdag is the former Minister of Health for Turkey. And uh, joining us remotely is Paul Spiegel from the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees Office. He's uh, joining us from Geneva, and unfortunately, um, as an embodiment of the UN, he's got to run off to do something important at about uh, 1.15. Uh, today's program is an hour long. Um, we'll, we'll start by framing some of the humanitarian issues that face uh, Syria and its neighbors, uh, Turkey chief among them, and then uh, we will explore practical ways of uh, dealing with the situation, and we hope to have time at the end to take questions. We'll take some questions online and then hopefully here in the audience. So with that said, we thought we'd start with a video from the UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees Office, uh, with an overview of the issue. Syria, the country shattered, its people engulfed in conflict, its neighbors bearing a brutal burden. Three years of pain and devastation, the great tragedy of this century. In Jordan, a rough city rises from the desert, sheltering over 100,000 Syrian refugees. In Lebanon, rural and urban refugees live where they can, clustered in tents or abandoned buildings. In Turkey, 21 camps in 10 provinces. In northern Iraq, these Syrians find refuge in a park. Egypt, where more and more Syrians seek safety or a route to Europe. More than two million refugees Syria is hemorrhaging women, children, and men. And inside Syria, over four million displaced. More than half the human flood leaving Syria are children, one million children, 70% under the age of 12. Children like little Holler, only three days old when her family fled to Iraq or four-year-old Sahad, her face scarred, but her life saved. Or Aya, whose hope is to go to school. Or Abdullah, who works to feed his family. 
the tide does not subside. Last month, over 40,000 refugees crossed a temporary pontoon bridge in northern Iraq in just one week. Borders are overflowing. Support is critical and critically needed for communities hosting so many refugees. Neighboring countries have shown great generosity, but the strain on economies, on infrastructures, is acute. Water, food, education, health care, housing. This crisis requires more than life-saving humanitarian aid. It urgently needs robust economic development to help host countries cope. Across the region, the sense of a future has been broken. Life now is reduced to survival and waiting for peace and a path home. Now that video is a, is a good overview of the problem. Um, we at The World have had reporters go to many of these refugee camps. We've had people uh, do reports from Armenia, from Greece, um, from Europe. But uh, I think part of the problem is that this tends to just wash over people, doesn't it? You hear it on the news uh, and it's just sort of same story, different day. And part of what we hope to do in this panel today is, is kind of tease out some of the problems facing refugees uh, in and from Syria and then uh, some of the solutions. We'll start with uh, Jennifer Leaning. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Th this war, which has gone on now for two and a half to three years, is one of the most vicious and brutal conventional wars that a government has waged against its people in many years. Uh, the international community has watched and wrung its hands, as you're all aware. Uh, what you're seeing in that video and what a number of panelists are going to talk about um, is the inevitable consequence, that is, forced migration of people fleeing um, a very heavily militarized assault on their homes and their cities and their um, modes of livelihood. Uh, it is important for us to think about this war in some of its peculiar facets. It began with uh, a really outrageous attack on children in homes that were putting up graffiti in the spirit of the Arab sp Spring, saying, we want freedom, this government has to go. They were imprisoned, tortured, mutilated, some killed. That fed a homes uprising, and thousands were killed in that uprising, recapitulating what uh, Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, had done in homes over 30 years ago, massacring somewhere between 10 and 40,000 people. History is repeating itself in terms of Sunnis against Alawites, Sunnis being the majority population, Alawite the minority and part of the regime um, elite. This war has demolished one of the most important and oldest civilizations in the Mideast. It is situated in one of the more politically volatile areas of the Mideast. Um, political uh, analysts are suggesting that this is not likely to bode well for the future of the country of Syria as an entity. Uh, the ways in which we analyze this uh, certainly will include the vast numbers of people who must be cared for within and outside who are fleeing their own homes. But we also need to think about this as a unusually harsh use of military weapons, high-velocity rifles, artillery shells, air warfare, 
that has led to uh, a very high demand for sophisticated medical care from the humanitarian community, both within and outside Syria. And that is an issue that is going to be addressed as well on this panel. I think it's also uh, important to recognize as we look forward on this, there's an element of drought, if not climate, climate change, that has contributed to some of the movement of Syrian farmers, Sunni primarily, into the more urban areas, which has then aggravated the communal divisions between these two major populations in Syria that we have watched guardedly for years. There was ample early warning of this. The international community once again has not responded except in the humane way and the humanitarian way that Paul and Mike are going to talk about. And then on top of this, a fiercely conventional war, quite one-sided in terms of weaponry, we have the recent use of chemical weapons, which adds um, literally and figuratively a toxicity to this war that again is um, not seen yet in this century and hopefully uh, with the response of the international community will not be seen again from the standpoint of chemical weapons use. Uh, we're watching a real calamity unfold here and there it's not a misfortune. It is an aggression with failure to act on the part of the international community. And that is the uh, perfect segue into Jean Gilman. She's senior advisor at the MIT Security Studies Program and an expert in chemical weapons. I want to begin following up from what Jennifer has been saying uh, with an emphasis on the harshness of and the unexpected uh, brutality of the use of chemical weapons uh, in Syria. It wasn't really anticipated by any other state or any uh, UN entity at all. It, it just came so from out of the blue. And the, the strangest of it is that it's such an obvious transgression of international norms, uh, but also very specific treaties. For example, the Geneva Protocol of 1925 is a very explicit ban on the use of chemical weapons. And lingering out there also is the International Criminal Court which defines the use of chemical weapons as a war crime. So it, it was a very strange transgression that we saw going on here, and maybe at some point we'll get to the bottom of why this all happened, but it did happen. So I want to just go back a little bit in history and give you just a few um, facts, uh, a thumbnail sketch, if you will, about the history behind the Chemical Weapons Convention. Now, the Chemical Weapons Convention is this entity, a standing organization in The Hague, which is the place where you find the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, that acronym OPCW that you keep hearing on the news. And that is um, a group, if you will, an organization within an organization whose mission is to go around the world and basically witness the destruction of enormous stockpiles of chemical weapons, uh, the stockpiles being declared by the state parties to the Chemical Weapons Convention. Let me back up historically a little bit on this. You go to Ypres, it's 1915, it's the First World War, and the Germans have invented the idea of using chlorine gas. And if you go to Ypres, and it's 1915, they release from 6,000 tanks of chlorine gas an enormous cloud over a battlefield, uh, the result of which is the deaths of about 6,000 of uh, Canadian and British and uh, some colonial soldiers. So that's the beginning of it. 
But behind that, all right, if you will, the, the background for that is really the 20th century as the time in which we're going to see the joining of science and industry for the making of weapons. And it makes the 20th century really extraordinary because you do have a little bit of this and that going on in the 19th century. You have the invention of the machine gun as a 19th century invention. Go into the 20th century and you're going into big time science industry warfare. And as you move into the, the 1920s and the 1930s, you have the theory that justifies this enormous power that states have. And it's called total war theory. And with total war theory, you have one state making war against another state with the goal of obliterating the industrial might of that other state. Now, what does that mean? That means you attack cities, you, you burn down bridges, you go after economic structure, and in the middle of that mix, you kill civilians. So if you look back on the 20th century, you see this incredible increase in the deaths of civilians because, in fact, it's legitimate. It was all right to do because that's the way nation states make war on each other. After World War II, the major powers decide that that's not what they want to do because, by the way, it's economically a terrible idea. We had to, you know, after, after bombing Germany and bombing Japan, we had to pay to, to, to restructure them. It was, it was a big economic cost, right? So we don't do that anymore. But we had client states, if you'll notice, who actually do pick up the notion of total war, and they pick up our weapons. So what do we have by the end of World War II? We've got chemicals. We have chemical weapon arsenals. Because although you have the 1925 Geneva Protocol, which forbids the use of chemical and also biological weapons, you don't have any ban on arsenals. You don't have any ban on the production, the development, the transport, getting ready to use those weapons as, let's say, in retaliation. So if you the buildup of the arsenals, so it's chemical. By the end of World War II, we certainly have the United States absolutely in the forefront of biological weapons development. Uh, an amazing program, um, not as expensive as the atomic bomb program, but, but getting up there, very, very expensive and very well developed. And then, of course, you've got the atomic bomb. You've got the ultimate incinerator. So, so what happens after World War II is that smaller states begin to say, well, listen, you know, that they've got that stuff, we want that stuff. We want chemical, we want biological, and we want nuclear. And that's exactly what happened. So you have enormous proliferation of these weapons, all of them, by the way, aimed at civilians. Now, initially, chemicals were for, were for battlefield. But when you get to post-World War II, we find out that the Germans have invented nerve gas, not just Cyclone B, by the way, for the camps, but also uh, Tabun and Sarin and a variety of others. So then we have something new in the arsenal. And it is the United States that pioneers this, but it proliferates all around. So I give you that as the background. We have it, just follow through with me, uh, client states, the United States doesn't really want to get involved with, uh, with the Middle East, but uh, let me see, Israel has chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons. Mm, that's interesting. There's a parallel. Uh, you've got 
Syria coming in now, which we know about in the 1980s with their chemical weapons. We had Libya, by the way. You had South Africa, apartheid South Africa. Look around the globe and you see this proliferation of WMD. And it all is all to emulate the larger powers and to get that kind of extra, um, that extra, that what we call cachet, right, in the international world. All of it is anti-civilian. So you come up to the, uh, the Iran-Iraq war and you have a use of chemical weapons that, again, was hardly predicted. The United States, even though it had its ally in Saddam Hussein, behind the scenes was really horrified by what he was doing and by the attacks on the, on the Kurds that happened in the late 1980s. All right, fast forward with me. The Cold War ends. It's 1992. And by the way, this, the, Russia at this point doesn't want anything to do with its chemical weapons. We want to get rid of our chemical weapons. We're tired of the arsenal. Um, and that tiredness with the arsenal, by the way, goes back to Richard Nixon in 1969. He bans biological weapons entirely and puts severe restrictions on chemical weapons. Why? Well, they're really they don't give you what conventional weapons can give you, and they don't give you what atomic bombs can give you, right? They don't have the deterrence power, and they don't have the, the uh, conventional uh, strategic or tactical power. So everybody wants out of this. And that's why you get the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention. Everybody wants out of these weapons because, in fact, they are anti-civilian. They're, re they're repulsive weapons. So, so what can we do? Well, the idea of the Chemical Weapons Convention was to, first of all, get the 30,000 tons of chemical weapons that the United States had destroyed and simultaneously destroy the 40,000 tons of the former Soviet Union Russia. So that was the mission in 1993. Now, it took until 1997 to get the treaty, the Chemical Weapons Treaty, to come into force, that is to really be effective. The treaty was held up by one man in the Senate, Strom Thurmond, who thought that it was a, uh, a plot against the, the sovereignty of the United States. Anyway, it comes into effect in 1997. And then these teams, OPCW teams, begin the supervision of the destruction of these chemical weapons. They are at 80% of the destruction worldwide of these chemical weapons. It's phenomenal. It's wonderful. It's one of the best stories of the 21st century. Get rid of this stuff. It's dangerous. It's harmful. It can hurt people. Um, and it's not controllable, as we have seen. It's very difficult. I think even now, as the teams are going in, as they are in there, and they're witnessing the destruction, the beginning, I, we hope, of the destruction of the, of the stockpiles, that we won't see accidents, that we won't see civilians in danger, that we won't see the teams in danger. And these are concerns that everyone knows about right now and, uh, and that we're all following. We're tracking these very carefully. We're hoping that the stockpiles are not in areas which are contended areas, but which are government-controlled areas. And by the way... We'll, we'll look at what right. comes next in just, okay, in just a few minutes. In two days, by the way, the, uh, uh, Syria will have uh, become a state party to the treaty, and that's extremely good news, and we'll see what happens with it. Thank you. Uh, next is uh, Michael Van Royen. He directs Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Michael. Thank you, Eric. 
Um, I actually want to give a counterpoint to the issue of chemical weapons, which can be seen from the humanitarian response perspective as distracting. Because the issue of, human, of uh, chemical weapons, while very important from an international law perspective and certainly from a mass kind of casualty perspective, um, accounts for, what, 2% or so of the casualties that we've seen in Syria, the 115,000 deaths, have really occurred because of direct attacks on civilians from conventional weapons. And, and also the deprivation of resources. So I want to mention just two things briefly before my colleague Paul Spiegel gets on the line. Um, the one issue is the, the types of medical response that are the sort of destruction or, or stress on the medical system, and then difficulties in access and accessing um, health systems and the ability to, to actually provide services. Um, the first is that if you think about this kind of a conflict, the, um, the epidemiology of illness is different than, say, other refugee emergencies that we might think about. This is not, these are not Sudanese refugees, for example, crossing large spans of land. This is in, in uh, um, urban settings and uh, populations that have enjoyed actually an excellent health system and an excellent public health system previously. So the, the reason that people are dying are for uh, traumatic reasons for um, chronic health reasons, for example, their deprivation of their sort of chronic medications. They're hypertensive. They have cardiac disease. So it's a very different population than, say, our sort of concept of refugees. Um, what that means is that the health system or the health services need to be higher level, right? They need to be tertiary care services providing surgical facilities and, and not only doing, you know, war surgery, but actually taking care of women who need C-sections, for example, or people who need surgical care or, uh, you know, on the medical side, people who need diabetic care, things like that. So our, our causes of mortality are both by deprivation of resources and by so the lack of being able to care for people because of direct trauma are very different than other concepts of, uh, uh, of refugees. Um, in addition, this war is quite different in many other respects because of the extreme restrictions in access. It's very difficult to gain access. Matter of fact, uh, uh, MSF and uh, several NGOs recently have made a point that um, you know, they have seen weapons inspectors and chemical weapons inspectors moving freely throughout restricted areas to inspect and destroy weaponry, where humanitarians and people who are trying to get humanitarian access to provide food, water, medications, surgical services can never get that access. And it was a, a bit of a paradox in that the only people with access, are the people addressing, you know, the very political issue of chemical weapons, where the real humanitarian needs of, you know, medical surgical care and, and uh, you know, very basic provision of services, we can't access those regions. So the extreme deprivation or the, the, the sort of deprivation of um, populations because of lack of access is a significant issue. Um, one additional point is that mental health is a huge issue. So while in this conflict, up to 15% of the population is suffering from major mental health issues, debilitating mental health issues that really affect families and communities, and we as a humanitarian community are not great at dealing when, with mental health issues. And then my final point is that the, the targeting of um, healthcare workers in general also creates a, 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 a problem with sort of accessing health services. So out of the, there's been a flight of 15,000 um, Syrian physicians from Syria, and in the Aleppo region, 5,000 physicians left. There remain 37 physicians to care for a large number of, of the population, meaning that there's a, an incredible need for external assistance to provide very basic services. and the medical staff are completely overworked. Um, 
notwithstanding the fact that they are also targeted. So in this era of um, there's no longer neutrality of, or medical neutrality. So healthcare workers, a hundred or more healthcare workers have been imprisoned and killed, Syrian healthcare workers, um, for suspicion of uh, caring for rebel militia, for example. Um, just this week, I think there was an MSF surgeon killed, and uh, there have been several hospitals that have been bombed. 37% of Syrian hospitals are um, non-functional because of attacks, and 20% are um, severely injured. So the, the, the lack of medical neutrality compounded by the difficulties in providing high-end medical care make this um, a unique and difficult crisis to, in which to address medical issues. Thank you, Michael. We're going to skip over uh, Mr. Aktag for just a moment, and you'll, you'll see why. Uh, next is Paul Spiegel. He's the Deputy Director of the Division of Program Support and Management at the uh, UNHCR, and he joins us now from Geneva. Paul. Great. Thank you, and uh, good, uh, good evening or good afternoon for you, everyone. And um, I want to start by just saying, uh, saying how severe and the, the magnitude of this emergency, uh, you know, as the High Commissioner said, we haven't seen anything, and it's a completely different type of emergency, but since 1994 in uh, in Rwanda. So the the amount of stress that it's putting on um, on the Middle East, but also on the humanitarians is, is really unprecedented. A couple quick numbers for you. Um, there is now there has now been over 2.175 million refugees that have fled uh, Syria proper. Seven hundred some Lebanon has taken the brunt of 780 thousand, followed by Jordan 540, Turkey 500, and then Iraq 200 and Egypt 125 thousand. Um, some of these countries, Jordan and Lebanon, are very small, and we won't go over how many refugees that would be in the U.S., but it is extraordinary. And the first thing we have to say is that very few countries in the world would actually um, be as hospitable and generous as these countries, and that needs to really, we really have to emphasize that. The response is, uh, it's very clear that, and as, as it said in the video, that the humanitarian response is at this point really just a Band-Aid, and um, it's gone well beyond what we can actually do as a humanitarian community. We currently have uh, 126 agencies, government, UN, NGOs, of which national, international, and faith-based, trying to respond to this. It is the largest uh, appeal that the, we've ever done. It's uh, for just for 2013. It's 2.98 billion dollars for this appeal, of which there's only 47 percent has been funded. And so we're making some very very difficult choices. Uh, and I'll mention that briefly in the uh, in the medical area. As Mike mentioned, you know these are middle-income countries. The the demographic profile, the epide disease epidemiological profile, are much sim more similar to the U.S. and Europe than uh, than we've dealt with in the past. In, in for example, Chad, clearly, it is much more expensive to respond, and there's always a question of equity, you know. But we are responding at a much uh, let's say, a higher level, of course, than we are in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that's something that certainly can be discussed. But generally, we try to respond at a level similar to where refugees have come from and where they are. One of the biggest problems, as Mike mentioned, is, is access. And we can talk about briefly about camp and out of camp. 
Camps are magnets for the media, for the politicians, and for the humanitarian organizations. Um, and if you look at Zatri refugee camp in Jordan, um, it has received, I would say, a disproportionate amount of medical uh, medical help compared to where the majority of refugees are outside of these camps. They're diffuse within the population, and the type of uh, services that they try to access really depends upon the disease and the cost. Um, Lebanon in particular is extremely complicated because there are no camps. They're mostly dispersed throughout the country. And Lebanon is a privatized healthcare system and very, very costly. We have tried to, one of the biggest, uh, I would say, challenges is secondary and tertiary healthcare. We're trying to prioritize public health, primary care, and emergency care, particularly emergency obstetrical care. Um, but the secondary and tertiary health care are we're dealing with uh, it's very similar to the Iraqi refugees. We're dealing with very, very costly diseases, cancers, cardiac bypass, renal dialysis. And due to lack of funding, which is understandable, we really have to prioritize and we have what are developed what we call exceptional care committees, local doctors and UNHCR doctors that have to make very, very difficult decisions according to prognosis and cost of these medication of these uh, these illnesses. This has been very, very difficult to to do, but it means that at times we have to deny care to certain individuals and then we have to try to work uh, with others. The last thing I'll mention is that, which is relatively new, is that there are many, many Islamic agencies now that are getting funds from the Gulf and Saudis and elsewhere. And Coordination is a very, very big issue, and how we coordinate with these agencies has been um, challenging, to say the least, but there is a complementarity that can be had, uh, particularly in healthcare, because they do a lot of one-off care, and so um, this is a big challenge that we need to look forward to working more with in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And uh, very quickly, uh, as Paul said, there are half a million refugees in Turkey, um, and we have a short video provided by the UNHCR uh, that, with specific issues in Turkey. Nizip camp, a sea of tents that stretches out into the horizon. Children play amongst the washing lines whilst their mothers look on. Located in the province of Gaziantep, this is one of the 17 camps built and maintained by the Turkish government. Over 8,000 refugees live here. Today, the camp has a special visitor, UNHCR High Commissioner Antonio Guterres. He sat with Syrian families, listening to their stories of flight. Raida walked two days to reach the Turkish border. She lives in this tent with her six sons. We were, we came, we are coming from Syria, we came yes. from Syria because of the bombing, because of the shelling. My husband died in the shelling. I lost my husband. It's a very big tragedy. Last week more than, we have registered more than one million people that fled the country. But there are several million inside Syria that badly need assistance. 
The Turkish government says it has spent over 800 million funding these camps. They are home to over 185,000 refugees. Turkey has now begun registering Syrians outside of the camps. At this local center in the city of Gaziantep, Guterres saw the registration process in action. After the refugees are interviewed, they are provided with a registration card. They can now receive access to free health care and additional aid. To date, over 40,000 refugees have registered and there are another 31,000 awaiting registration. So, As you can see, Turkey is uh, working very hard to, to uh, settle the Syrian refugees and uh, few people know that better than uh, Recep Akdag. He's the former Minister of Health from Turkey. Mr. Akdag. Thank you. It's a real tragedy in Syria. Uh, I mean, we witness, we are, we are the witnesses of that uh, real tragedy, real brutality in Turkey, because we have very large, very uh, big border in Syria. And we have some relatives in each side. I mean, they were always, uh, always uh, seen each other before these conflicts. So we hosted, we have, we, we have hosted all of them in our country, and we feel that the Syrian people in our country um, are not refugees. We feel them like our guests. Um, um, I mean, and we provide all uh, of the uh, needs uh, for them. I mean, they have their temporary houses, they have health services, they have education for their children, food, uh, clean water, sanitation. But unfortunately, it doesn't solve the problem. I mean, okay, we, we give services, necessary services for the people, they flee to Turkey. But there are many others in Syria, we know, the, the, the situation. I mean, the tragedy is so big that a dictator uh, um, keep on bombing their citizens from, from air by uh, his air forces. It, it's a real tragedy. Uh, you can understand um, some conflicts between two sides. I mean, they are two sides and they, are, they have some conflicts. They are fighting each other. Uh, army forces, it's not good, but it's a reality. But it's, it's really uh, impossible to understand for a government uh, bombing their citizens by their air forces. So uh, in, in our country, uh, both in the camps and both outside the camps, we give all the health services and the other services to Syrian people. I mean, we took them uh, whenever they need uh, by ambulances, and we give all primary health care services in the camps and outside, outside the camps. And whenever they need, we refer them secondary or tertiary hospitals, uh, for example, we, um, we examined 
more than a million five hundred uh, Syrian citizens in primary health care centers. Uh, we admitted more than three hundred thousand people to hospitals, uh, inpatients more than thirty six patients and delivery number uh, more than six thousand in Turkey from Syrian pregnant women. Uh, but uh, as I said before, it, 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 I mean, it doesn't solve the problem. It, it must be, uh, it uh, has to be ended in, in some way. The, all the things, and then we are talking now, we are discussing some, some aspects of the problem now, are palliative uh, uh, for the situation. I mean, the, the war, the bombing of the people uh, by air forces uh, has to be ended. And in my opinion, the, the international committee, uh, community, the United States, has that power. We, uh, as mm, public health people, always take care of the, uh, of course, health issues. But how do you think that uh, such a kind of dicta dictator uh, would permit you to go to Syria and then help the people. It's not possible because uh, they 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 have been bombing their citizens. I mean, they, they they don't care about the health uh, of their people. So it, it's the real uh, problem uh, has to be solved uh, and. Uh, um, of course, we will continue to give all the services to Syrian people in Turkey. Uh, as I said, uh, we fill them our gas. I mean, it, uh, it, the number is not important. Maybe it will increase. Now, approximately uh, 500,000 people inside and outside the uh, camps. We keep on giving all the services, like our citizens. But it need the, the, the situation itself need to need to be ended. Thank you, Rachel. So uh, our five panelists have uh, sort of laid out a fairly pessimistic uh, outlook on what's going on. Uh, what we'll do now is we'll solve the problem. To the best that we can. Um, we have some uh, very renowned professionals here. We'll start with Paul. Uh, where do we go from here, Paul? Um, I wish I knew. I, I, um, one area that we have been trying to, to look at is recognizing that the humanitarians are this is not it is well beyond a humanitarian problem and also recognizing that particularly in Jordan and Lebanon uh, the amount of refugees there are are causing a, a tremendous strain on existing services and so we are trying to work with development agencies uh, we're working with the World Bank UNDP you know, it's it, development and humanitarian aid and the way the mechanisms work are extremely different, different, different. And so we're trying to work with them to expedite areas, for instance, 
you name it, from roads to to redoings, water, sanitation, everything, anything that can help the hosting communities that at this point are um, suffering or beginning to suffer almost as much as the refugees in certain situations. So that's one area we're doing a lot of joint missions together with the bank, particularly, uh, and uh, parts of the EU, to try to expedite funding, development funding that will have a, a larger effect on the systems. And Paul will have to leave us in just a moment. So I, I want to get another quick question to you. Do you think people understand, governments understand that this is such a huge humanitarian crisis? I, I'm not sure even I, un- I realized that it was bigger than Rwanda and Darfur and all these other uh, places that we've heard about in the news. I think, I think the governments do. Um, the problem is the public, uh, it's very hard as, as you, it's because it's so large now, it's very hard, I think, to, to have, to have the average citizen, uh, in the U S Canada, where I'm from, wherever to really understand the, the, um, the extremity of the situation. The numbers are so big that they become almost meaningless. And, um, I think that's one of one of the problems. You, when you just look at the what happened recently um, of the, I'm, you'll forgive me, I can't remember how many deaths, a hundred or so deaths of crossing um, uh, into Italy recently. People can relate to that much more easily they can than hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing at this point. Okay, thank you, Paul. Paul Spiegel thank you. is. I'm going to leave now. Is the uh, Paul Spiegel is the deputy director of the Division of Program Support and Management at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR. Um, so, <laughs> what is next? What have we learned from the past two plus years of uh, warfare in Syria? As you said, things have changed. Healthcare workers are now targets. They're they're weapons of war. Uh, we talked about this before. Formerly, there used to be um, safe corridors, safe passage where humanitarian r- workers could go, where aid could flow. Those two things have disappeared. Uh, uh, what do we do now? Well, can Anyone? I just make one point about well, to build on what Paul was saying, which is that uh, the humanitarian agencies, whether they're NGOs or they're UN agencies like UNICEF or UNHCR, uh, were set up in the apparatus after World War II and in the 50s uh, to deal with uh, emergencies. Uh, Increasingly, with these long-lived wars, uh, many of them not with the high arsenal weight that Syria is um, subjecting its citizens to, the uh, duration of the war and the duration of the refugee crisis has meant that, not speaking about Syria, we have upwards of 40 to 45 million people around the world that are in long-lived, internally displaced, and refugee settings. And those that have stayed for a longer period of time, that is upwards of seven years, their pros- in refugee status now, this is not IDPs, their prospects of going home ever again are diminishing. Now there is, of those who stayed over seven years, they are now facing a 20-year mean stay in refugee camps. So with the fertility levels that are bearing on these populations, that's one and a half generations. This is a custodial role. This, and we're not talking about Palestine. This is out, not talking about the refugees in Palestine. This is a custodial role for the humanitarian community that they've never been set up to do. So what Paul is talking about is imaginative, 
Uh, none of the machinery meshes development and humanitarian. Uh, it is uh, a way out of this situation that UNHCR in particular have been trying to figure out, but it's not going to be accomplished in the time frame that we're facing now, which is the shredding of Syria, the destabilization of the adjoining countries in many ways, the vast impoverishment of the people who have fled. They've lost everything. Uh, and the misery that they are now um, enduring. This is, speaking of next steps, there are many next steps on the positive side, but on the international humanitarian law side, the legal side, what al-Assad has committed is a massive crime against humanity, and it needs to be something that is, of course, going to be brought up before the International Criminal Court, even before the use of chemical weapons. But what is, what is extraordinarily um, difficult for those of us who have been watching this unfold, and I'm speaking now, I know, for everyone on this panel and for Paul, what's extraordinarily difficult is that the international community, starting at the level of the Security Council, has been unable to intervene to stop this massive catastrophe from occurring quite suddenly in two and a half to three years. And unless we get that machinery in better shape, uh, there are going to be other and similar major blots on the early 21st century with tremendous amount of humanitarian suffering. Michael, I, I wonder if uh, when governments, when politicians are taking into account how they will deal with a certain situation, do they even think about humanitarian aid? Because certainly, you, you know, as Jennifer says, if you stop the problem two years ago, the humanitarian problem is, is much diminished two years on. Well, I think governments know very well the power of humanitarian aid as a way to say you're doing something, right? So this, you know, the answer in, in Syria and in the region is not a humanitarian answer. It's a political, maybe military answer, but it is not uh, humanitarian assistance. Humanitarian assistance is, is simply to provide emergency life-saving support for a population under extreme stress. It is not going to change the problem. I think the things that um, we need to consider, you know, sort of progress for the humanitarian community, in other words, things that'll help this situation anyway, at least from the humanitarian side, is to um, do things like, and I think Paul's suggestion was probably the best one, and that is to, to keep this from being a regional destabilizer by helping shore up the services of Jordan and Lebanon and in Turkey, for example, and even Iraq, to manage these large flow of refugee populations and also to secure them and to make it not so much a strain because otherwise this, what is a regional um, issue will become a, a more, a, a greater regional destabilizer. Um, I think another thing that can be done is to create corridors of humanitarian access. Um, the humanitarian aid community has actually evolved greatly over the, the last two or three decades. I mean, it's been, it's become far more professional. It's become more able to manage uh, humanitarian crises and to coordinate with each other to do so. The problem is this is huge. And so it's the scale and it's the complexity and it's the lack of access to this crisis that make it really unique. So it is not that the aid community is broken, really. It's actually that the crisis itself is so huge, so overwhelming, so complex, and so difficult to access that aid can't do what it's supposed to do. Um, so I would say that the answers to at least to assist or to see some progress forward would be to assist our neighboring countries in shoring up their kind of developmental capacity so that they can do well, um, create 
uh, and argue for corridors of humanitarian access insofar as we're able to do so, coordinate better among ourselves and mobilize funding that is, as, as Paul mentioned, um, difficult to come by. Gene or, or Ray Chep, do you, do you have anything to add briefly? And we'll, then we'll move on to questions. Yeah, uh, in my opinion, if the United States, the international community, were as serious, I mean, were um, serious about ending the war, as serious as uh, giving some humanitarian aids uh, or something, or stopping the chemical weapons, it, it would be successful. I mean, the, the international power, the United Nations power, uh, is enough to do that. But we, 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 did, we don't focus on that point. I mean, we are, uh, we keep, keep on talking to give some humanitarian uh, aids, mm. but it's not possible. Okay, you can do something in the other refugee camps, I mean, other than the Turkey, the, 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 the situation is very good in Turkey, but, but you couldn't do anything in Syria without stopping the war, without stopping the bombing of the, the people. Yes, if I could just add to that, yeah. um, the strength of the United Nations, the, the strength of the Security Council, the political will among all parties is absolutely essential for stabilizing the Middle East. Uh, there are a lot of disparate efforts going on. There are a lot of behind-the-scenes efforts going on. But it's very, very important um, that there be, again, this political will and that the United Nations strength be admitted and be used. Uh, because they can do amazing things. It, uh, it was a year ago, August, by the way, that they sent in um, Admiral Mood to, uh, to actually work in Syria, and that plan was not supported by the Security Council. Had it been, I think we, there could have been some progress, and that, that plan was actually killed by the Security Council, not being unanimous. So the chemical weapons issue, by the way, is one in which I feel very optimistic, because it does admit the power of international convention. It, it is being supported, of course, by the United Nations. And it could perhaps lead to peace. It could lead to some negotiations for peace that would be stronger than before Syria uh, actually became party to the Chemical Weapons Convention. Yeah, I wonder if in some way, and this is probably not a good thing to say, but the, the chemical weapons attack helped in a way. It called okay. attention to uh, yeah. What was happening? Well, it also, pardon me, it also engaged Russia, right? And so the, right. the engaged, yes. it, it right. engaged Russia as a player and a negotiator um, in that. And yes. so the, the major, the Security Council, it's really all about the will of the Security Council to influence both the Assad regime and the other actors. So I think. Security Council. Right. Yeah. It, it was a worldwide Central. red line and not just a United States president. So, so uh, uh, sorry. Uh, so there is an agreement that uh, if you get rid of your chemical weapons, you can keep on killing. That's the reality now. Mm. There are a lot of moral forces against that. There's a lot of normative Yes, but, but work. if, if you look at the outcome, that's the reality. Wait, wait, look at the long view here. There are, uh, there are other mechanisms here. There are other plans being made, if you will. You do have the Geneva Conventions. You do have 
you know, uh, the Geneva Protocol, you do have the International Criminal Court. These are not um, insignificant. There are pressures here, and I think that those pressures actually will come to good. We have before you, a, the glass is half full and half empty right here. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll take questions. Hope, hopefully we can get in a few. We'll start with uh, online, Lisa. Yep, I think we have time just for a couple questions, and we have an active chat going on online, so I just wanted to mention that. Um, yes, on, on our online chat. Um, here's one question. I'd like to know more about the conditions of refugees who are not in the camps. We touched on this a little bit. How do they get housing, food, and services outside of the camp structure? The first video showed families living outdoors in a park in Iraq who clearly were in need of everything. But in the second video, we saw people in Turkey who are not in camps getting processed with identity cards for services. How does all of this work? It's complicated. I, I, maybe Michael and I could, could share that. Uh, UNHCR is best equipped, as are the humanitarian organizations, to uh, deal with refugees who are in a semi-confined area where everyone has an ID card, you know the family size, and you deliver rations and tents and set up water and sanitation. The volume of these refugees and the precipitous arrival has meant that the refugee camps have not been set up as thousands come, and so they drift. This is small countries. They drift into the villages and the, and the rural areas. It is a bedeviling bureaucratic problem to find them, to register them, to call on the aid that has been, the meager aid that has arrived, and to distribute it fairly to the people who are essentially self-settled. And it is part of the enormous international headache that is now facing the international community. They are probably in worse shape. We know less about them. Uh, the children are still numerous. And it's this combination of the overflow in the camps and the self-settled um, refugees that are contributing to um, ongoing distress, including the major issues for child protection. Because in the camps, there are people overseeing this. But the problem is now that the families are so desperate. They're essentially selling their kids. There is very, very rapid increase in early marriage. All kinds of ways. Human trafficking is um, a very big problem. And this is in partly because there are so many so fast, and many are outside the refugee camps. Uh, healthcare is helping us to record all the uh, people outside the uh, refugee camps because we are giving all the health care free of charge. So they encourage them to be recorded uh, and then uh, get IDs in, in Turkey. And just in, in my time in the field and as I've worked in, in several of these settings, I've never seen a country respond in such an organized um, an appropriate manner as Turkey has in organizing the refugee flow and services. You could see it in the video, right? Yes. The, the, the camps that, in many respects, the Turkish government kept the humanitarian community out initially and managed all of this in an, a really an incredible way. Um, so the services for those populations um, have been very organized, very well put together, and it's been a real, uh, um, it's, it's been a, an amazing feat. The, the, opposite of that actually is the internally displaced populations within Syria, um, many of them in urban settings. As Jennifer mentioned, it's an extreme, not only is it difficult to provide services to people in urban settings, 
but the extreme restrictions in humanitarian access means that there's millions of people without any access to external resources. I'd like to add one more point about this humanitarian crisis and the human um, burden. Uh, and it links to uh, Rich's point about the air war, there, and what Michael was talking about, traumatic injury. Uh, there are many people who are not dead, who are now surviving with uh, penetrating abdominal wounds, with uh, paralysis because of the, the weapons of the crush have hit their spinal cords. We were going to have paraplegics, people with ongoing abdominal complaints, people with head injuries who are alive but are disabled. And this community, as that I'm speaking here, it's not a community, this, this array of populations now that are scattered and deeply embedded in adjoining countries as well as in Syria are not poised in terms of resources, manpower, and skills to deal with the rehab burden that a war like this is going to impose on the region. And that is a longer-term concern uh, if we could get the political will and settlement that many of us are talking about. That is going to be a long-term concern for the region and an area for international community aid and development uh, that we need to be thinking about already. Do we want to take a, another online question? You know, I think we're almost out of time, but I do just want to point out that all the questions from the chat will be on our website and people can see the activity there. Um, we had a lot of panelists and a lot of material to cover, so we weren't able to take as many questions as we normally could, but this has been very fascinating, so thank you. And, and we would also like to let you know that um, at The World, we're trying our best to uh, keep this issue covered. As I started out by saying it, there is uh, some amount of fatigue with the sort of same story, different day. Um, but certainly if there's something you think we ought to cover, or if there are comments you would like to make to us, we have a, a pretty far reach between our own correspondence and, and the BBC. Uh, we would be more than happy to have a, a look at that. And our website is pri.org. Uh, and we would love to hear from you, both studio audience and people online now. And uh, we just wanted to thank you all for joining us at the forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. Our uh, panelists, Jennifer Leaning, Jean Gilman, Michael Van Royen, and Rachel Akdag, and of course, Paul Spiegel, uh, who is joining us from Geneva. Thank you very much. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.